I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with Flo Jacques, who is a junior now at UNC Asheville. Flo, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this opportunity. So tell us about what you studied as part of you were one of the presenters at the uh, uh, African Americans in Southern Appalachia Conference back in October at UNC Asheville. And you presented some research you had done. What were you researching? Tell us about it. So the topic I decided to look further into was the aid and education system for African-Americans in Western North Carolina, Um, specifically Western North Carolina, because although Asheville is known as the predominantly like popular city of Western North Carolina, there was so much more to know about the other parts of it. Um, And so it was very interesting to find the little history that a lot of people do not know about at all. Um, And people actually do not know about the black population that existed in Western North Carolina. If you're not educated on this topic, you'd never guess you'd find any black people in the West of North Carolina. So, yeah. What sort of drew you to it? I mean, you touched a bit on it there about learning the stories that aren't popularly known about uh, Asheville and Western North Carolina. But what sort of drew you to that topic? Well, um, the part about like aid and education, I think that this has been an ongoing thing in the African-American community um, in our society for a long time um, as far as why are black people not receiving proper education and the uh, hindrances of that. Um, and so I figured, although education is a common topic that we talk about every day in our current society, I think I can still, I thought I could still do this um, and by shedding more light on a specific region as opposed to the broad U.S. Um, and so, I mean, education is a major problem. I mentioned that in my article that um, it's one of the major pillars for African Americans. Um, and so I figured I, I can't find I can't think of any other topic that is more important for the black community than education. All right. So your study started looking back at aid for African Americans in the area uh, starting in 1865 at the end of the Civil War. So Tell us what you found. (laughs) Well, um, I decided to do 1865. Uh, We'll begin with 1865. Um, And although um, this is the part where the topic of aid separates from the education part, because although I could have just kept it as just education, um, I figured that aid is another proportion that provides like better resources, how to get to the education part. Um, And I think that the... Freedmen's Bureau, which is what I begin with, began in 1865. It uh, was established post-Civil War. um, And because many people were aware of the struggles African-Americans were facing, they figured um, it's really important that we establish a program that can provide the the, the necessities they need. And so from my standpoint, I mean, although I did not live in that area, I didn't know, I didn't even get to speak to anybody that lived during that time and hear their opinions. But um, from my standpoint, I think that they knew that African-Americans just got out of slavery, you know, and um, in order for them to get back into society, it's important that we give them at least a step up. And I think that's what the Freedmen's Bureau was was doing. Um, It established many great programs like uh, transportation to jobs, you know, medical aid, housing, you know, all those things. Um, And I think it's critical that 
those things were given to them in order for them to at least get to the part where white people were, you know. So um, that's why I started that as my foundation of the of my research. In particular, you have it. In particular, you talk about how uh, the white people of Buncombe County responded to this. Mm-hmm. And there is a pretty ugly history of in Buncombe County, particularly Zebulon Vance, someone who was honored in Pack Square and is honored in many other places in North Carolina was a big figure uh, post-Civil War. So what did you find out? What can you tell us about how the Freedmen's Bureau, its um, mission, and how it was received by the white people of Buncombe County? Well, um, it's no surprise that a lot of uh, the people, the white conservatives of Buncombe County, did not approve of the program. Um, Many of them felt that the greater need was for poor whites, you know, not for African Americans. And I think it's due to the um, mental concept of blacks as not equal individuals and that they don't deserve as much or, you know, so um, I think for that reason, they were really jealous, you know, Um, I think when I don't think I touched on this much in my project, but I kept thinking throughout it, it's just they don't want the like the white people do not want black individuals to reach to the level they are at. Um, they want them to stay below. And so for that reason, I think the white conservatives did not want them to get any sort of help because that means, whoa, they're about to get to our to our level. You know, I don't want them to be as equally successful as I am. So um, as far as Zebulon Vance, I did not really touch on him just because a lot of uh, the what I've found it was a little mixed. You know, some people were saying that he used uh, black slaves to help him build Pack Square, um, of course, with no fun- funding or uh, pay for them. Um, and other people see him as a hero, you know, so I didn't know how to go about writing that in there. And so I left it out. So as we turn into the 20th century, the Freedmen Bureau had been founded after the Civil War. It existed during Reconstruction. Reconstruction ended somewhere later in the in the 19th century. As we started in the 20th century, what happens next? Well, um, in the 20th century, I discuss the termination of the Freedmen's Bureau, not only because of jealousy, even the former president, Andrew Johnson, was not a fan of it, you know, um, and I uh, mention how the constant resistance that happened within the population, um, the white population, along with the leader of the country, it just made it too difficult. Uh, President Andrew Johnson mentioned that one of the reasons were to the termination of the bureau was that um, it was a financial burden. Um, it provided unequal opportunities because we were favoring one race over another. Um, and so for those reasons, uh, it it did not have enough support going into the 20th century. And so by early on, if I'm not mistaken, between like mid 1920s, it ended. Um, And so, of course, we can get into the fact that why are we mentioning that it favors another race when we know this race needs it? You know, we've have we've had a long history of discrimination against the black community and we're providing this to them because they need it because they need that leg up. You know, they don't have anything. But 
that the lack of support really uh, played a role in the demise of it. And by that time, we're getting into the 1920s, going through to the 1960s and that area, the the Jim Crow era, um, going into the civil rights era. So, again, education being so important to lift people up, mm-hmm. um, what was going on in that sort of 40-year period after the Freedmen's Bureau had ended? So as soon as the Freedmen's Bureau had ended, um, I mean, uh, this is where I transition into the education portion. And um, we see many white individuals who saw the need of proper resources and adequate education for the black community. So we get a lot of um, white missionaries um, coming from the north, driving down or um, traveling down to Western North Carolina and establishing schools specifically for the black community. Um, They were aware of the problem, you know, the need for it, because, of course, desegregation was not a thing yet. And so since schools were segregated and the white conservatives did not see that black people should be educated, um, other people who believed the opposite decided it was up to them to provide that for them. So we get people like Emily Pruden, who um, established many, many schools in Western North Carolina that exist today, like Lincolnton um, University or college, uh, many other schools here, uh, Fever University, you know, those things like that. And so that were established for the black community were for the secondary, secondary, you know, primary years schools of schools for them. Um, and so they made sure that they had the resources, but we get into the problem of resistance again from the white conservatives of Western North Carolina, um, not just Buncombe County, but also Elk Park and Watauga County um, and Avery County um, up North in the Blue Ridge mountains. Um, and so they just hated the current the teachers that were teaching there they hated they were jealous um and so all of the jealousy that was going on within the community allowed the i mean made the leader emily and many of the other teachers that she had want to quit you know there again the lack of support and so for that reason um the schools also ended up closing down shortly. Um, that goes for the Salem School and Orphanage that she'd established there. Um, she and other white missionaries also. Um, and then we go into St. Anthony of Padua that is in Asheville, which shortly turned into Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church for the same reasons. But that ended into the, um, about... The 1950s? Uh, the 1960s starts the civil rights era, and that brings us into to today, really, uh, the last 50 years or so. What changed between then as desegregation, you know, then was de- desegregation began to occur uh, through the civil rights era, and then we're at this era now where, in many ways, segregation has retrenched itself. Mm-hmm. Um, what has happened in those 50 years? I think a lot has happened. Um, many of the things that has happened um, in the post-Civil War era um, into the Civil Rights era um, still sort of exists today. You know, yes, we get a lot of uh, desegregated classroom, desegregated schools. Um, you know, we have a combination of a variety of races within the schools. But um, into the 21st century, I got the opportunity to, to um, interview a few uh, PTA members of schools in Asheville, um, along with a former teacher at 
Claxton Elementary, Hall Fletcher, um, Stevens Lee, uh, Lee, Lee Walker Heights. You know, she's taught at those schools. And so um, the things that she had experienced during her four, um, her 14 years of teaching in Western North Carolina, she says really resembles what was existing during the civil um, civil rights era. Um, so although the classes were more integrated, um, for one, during the integration process, it was a lot of people don't really realize how the black community lost their schools. And although um, it was to end a nasty part of American history, you know, the segregation thing, um, less attention were given to the black students, you know, um, and it was because the white teachers were in charge, you know, every teacher that you can come across, they were predominantly white, you know, and so for that reason, it wasn't like, hey, let's desegregate classrooms, and everybody's on the same page, and every teacher is happy, every white teacher is happy, every white individual is happy, and so every equal treatment is existing now, you know, that's not the case, and so for that reason, um, we talk about uh, Coral Jeffries, who, um, saw the need that uh, black students were not receiving the basic literacy skills, you know, learning how to read basic facts around the, about the world. And so she collaborated with new city Christian school um, to make that happen, you know? And so um, while that is happening, we get uh, the interviewer that I discussed um, earlier um, feeling that they, as the black individual, as a black professional, having to make that change within their classrooms, having to be the counselor, be the mentor for their black students, because nobody else will. Um, and again, although classes uh, were more integrated, there was still a lot of segregation happening happening within the classrooms. More specifically, um, one one experience that one of the many experiences um, my interviewer mentioned was that um, her classrooms were predominantly black, although Asheville is predominantly white. And that is because they said the school system was moving into a, an idea they called cohorting, where if the student had any behavioral problems, any disabilities, any of this sort, they would find a way to make that black individual end up in a black teacher's classroom. And so that became a huge problem because we had students from different like age ranges and classroom levels in the same classroom. Um, and so, of course, you'd get the white classroom with predominantly white students. And so that's what she means by that. Even in this 21st century, as of um, 2007, you know, there were still a lot of that resembling um, from the civil rights era. Certainly an awful lot that you, you go through mm -hmm. in your report. But there are a lot of parallels, even from 1865 to now. That's 150 years or so. But there were a lot of parallels, I think, to what happened then, what happened in some other areas, and what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. As you went through it and studied it, what did you find is the most striking things that really stood out to you about the parallels from then to now? Um, as far as what parallels from... I mean, the 19th century into the 21st century, um, I think there's too much that 
is it still happening, you know? Um, I mean, there has been a lot of changes. It's pretty tough to really touch on the parallels because um, there's a lot. I mean, especially in subtle ways. That's why. Because it's easy to say, yeah, we're not living in a segregated society anymore. Yeah, everybody has more rights, you know, regardless of your background. But that's not really the case in a subtle way. You know, you that's the whole point of having to do this research project because you look into how there's so many changes that have been made, but there has not been. Because if that many changes were made, then we wouldn't have such a broad achievement gap, you know? And I, one of the things I touch on is how the achievement gap began once integration began. Um, and I think that's a crucial component of the black black education because although we don't really want to say that um before desegregation black schools were better i don't think that's the case i don't think blacks were better off before um desegregation but i feel like there's more unequal rights happening within the classrooms or within some classrooms i've had white teachers that you know were not just nice to me but also looked out for for me, gave me resources. Um, I didn't feel unequally opportuned. Uh, but that is something that happened, um, that happens post integration. And that is something that happened clearly as far as by law post, I mean, um, before integration. So as far as parallels, that's what I can think of. But again, the it really happens subtly. You know, it's not evident. I guess maybe a better way to phrase it is some of the things you talked about in 1865 during the Freedmen's Bureau that that was created to address still exist today. And I think maybe that's maybe that's a better way of me phrasing the question is we still seem to have the same problems of when things are done to help elevate the African-American population, there is resistance to it. I think um, that's maybe a better way of phrasing the question. So as you looked at it and taking it in that framework, I guess, what are the similarities? What has, can you say what has worked and what hasn't worked? I mean, is is, is it that or is it, um, you know, what, what's next, I guess, maybe a better way to put it? I'm, I, I'm not too sure I can say what has worked and what has not worked because I've not been able to travel to various parts of Western North Carolina to even dictate that. But um I think one of the key components of this whole entire project was the resistance factor um, that even from the beginning, yes, this program, the uh, Bureau of Refugees was established to aid African-Americans shortly after, you know, white people did not like that. And for many other reasons, it ended. Um, same thing with um, desegregation, you know, into the civil rights era. Uh, white people did not like that. And there was a lot of resistance to it. I mean, even as of recent years, you know, within the last 10 years, many other states finally sort of desegregated their schools and other systems. You know, um, discrimination has uh, persisted all throughout history from 1865 into this present. Um, and I mean, specifically, uh, even within the classrooms. Um, so we still find that no matter what changes we make to better the African-American community, to better opportunities and provide equal opportunities, it still is resisted by the white population. Um, and so I think that's the most, 
I can't find the word. I think that's the main problem with going forward as a society. It's hard to um, really allow Black individuals to have opportunities when we're not all on the same page. I mean, I can give uh, an outside example of, um, you know, President Barack, former President Barack Obama. Um, Yes, we finally got a black president, but a lot of people, a lot of the white population still found a way to say, well, he didn't either he didn't really deserve that or he's not he wasn't even born here you know but the the facts are facts you know we find the papers we have the evidence but even then there's always resistance but then sometimes we sit down and we try to say we have progressed you know look at we have a black president we had a black president we we've integrated schools or they blacks can work in the same place as a white person now you know we have all these changes but there's still the resistance factor that exists You know, um, my last point to that question is um, even within the the working field, you know, getting a job, um, we claim that there we don't discriminate, you know, even within the housing discrimination, we don't discriminate. But I mean, some people are more upfront than others. They'll tell you, oh, I thought you were a white person. I have family members who have experienced somebody telling them that, you know, oh, you sounded white over the phone. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, the position has been filled within a day. You just told me, you know, so and this is as of within the past five years, you know, and so many changes, but not really. Well, that's all my questions. Uh, You certainly were terrific in speaking to all these points. What else would you like to say? I mean, what else about this and sort of what you found and and what's going forward and what's next, I guess, anything else you want to add to to what you've been discussing already? Um, I think that uh, this entire project was very enlightening to me because um, we're aware of what goes on around us. We know, you know, we see that there are differences in race and differences in treatment across the board. Um, but I think that the most important part of why society has persisted in racism is not just the white individuals who have resisted, but also the foundation, the um, the foundational beliefs. You know, I mentioned, um, I can, I'm blanking on his name, but I mentioned uh, the former uh, individual who believed that um, the country was built for white men uh for the po- posterity prosperity of white men um and only for white men those are his exact words you know and i think many other individuals many other white individuals still hold those values true and i mean truthfully they did white people did build it for themselves the black individuals were only brought here to help do that but afterward, they weren't really supposed to participate in all of it, unfortunately. But since this is where we are now, we still have a lot of people who carry those beliefs into this era. And for that reason, that's why it's difficult to even uh, provide better and equal opportunities for all individuals. Well, Flo Jacques, thank you so much for coming in today and speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me.